I appreciate you bearing with us each morning at Cross Creek as we go through our church plant uh, aches and pains. Technology is never easy, especially when we set it up every morning. And I'm actually especially grateful for David Lanier, who's subbing in first time, helping out with that, and then just all those things that go together. So again, thank you for uh, learning with us. It is actually a great thing and a privilege to be able to come to the Lord this morning with all those resources. Well, I actually, about, uh, let's say it was about 26 hours ago, I was not sure if I was going to make it up here this morning. This past couple days, I've never felt providentially hindered like I was the last couple days. Just various things going on. I had, for the first time, I actually got to participate in a wedding last night. And at the end of the actual wedding, the pastor that I was doing the wedding with, he said to me, I asked him if he was going to be going to the reception. He said, no, I probably will not be going to the reception, at least not for very long. I just have stuff to do tomorrow morning. I was like, you're not going to the reception. This morning, I realized his wisdom. There's a need for rest. But I'm glad to be here with you this morning, though, because what Chris has actually given me the call to preach to you this morning, this passage in Ephesians, is actually something that reflects my burden for us as a church. See, Paul's been talking about the love of Christ in a lot of different ways that we looked at Ephesians. And what he's bringing us to in this point, and really all in chapter 4, is that God's love brings about change in us. And sometimes that change is the change of growth pains, isn't it? And see, this is the thing I long for us. I long for us to understand change in a way that's motivated by the gospel. Now, in the South, we're really good at coming on Sunday mornings. I, re- I say this in the South. I remember talking about Pastor St. Louis. He said, it's the problem everywhere. We get really good at coming on Sunday mornings. We put on our best clothes. We put on you know, our best smiles. We put on our best attitudes. And we think that these things make us a good Christian. Well, they don't. Gospel change has got to be so much deeper than skin deep. And this morning, that's actually what Paul's going to challenge us to do. He's going to talk to us about what it means to put off the old man and to put on the new. Something Chris is talking about. And he's going to give us some difficult things to deal with. So it's with that in mind, I'd like us to open up. We're going to be looking at Ephesians 4:25 through 5:2, picking up where we left off last week. Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members one of another. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down in your anger. Give no opportunity to the devil. Let the thief no longer steal. But rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands, so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up, as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. Do not grieve the Holy Spirit, by whom you are sealed for the day of redemption. For let all bitterness, wrath, and anger, and clamor, and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, as Christ forgave you. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children, and walk in love, as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us. A fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Grass withers, flowers fade, but the word of our God, it stands forever. Let's pray. Lord, what a joy it is to be your people. To bear your name, to reflect your image. 
yet this morning we want more for our lives. Lord, we want to see the improvement of that image as we look for our day of glory with You. That is, Lord, we want to see change. And Lord, You're the God of change. You're the God who brings to us the change that... that, You're the God who brings to us the only change that's possible. Lord, we look back in the story of Scripture and we see that You changed the heart of Adam and Eve when they turned away from You. We see how though a hardened heart of Pharaoh, Lord, You changed so that Your people could go free. We saw how our hearts hardened against You, Lord, in the wilderness, and yet You again, You changed the hearts of Your people, Lord. Lord, when David sinned Bathsheba, Lord, You brought him to his knees and brought him to gospel change. Lord, change takes place in you this morning. We will look for that. Change takes place in you, Lord, because of your love for us. Lord, help us to look for your love. Help us to live out of your love that was manifest through Christ. And this morning, as we look at your word, Lord, make your redemption new again to us. Lord, bring us closer to that day of salvation where redemption is full. For where change is no longer needed. Do that for us this morning as we hear your word taught. In your name we pray. Amen. Please forgive me and set me free. I don't know how many times I pray this prayer. It must be in the hundreds. Father, here I am again, confessing that same sin again to you again. Every time I have to remind myself of God's merciful character and gospel promises, I am forgiven, but I also really want to change. Frustrated by my lust, I wrote a vow. This was it. Never again. I noted the date and imagined looking back in the months to come with satisfaction that my struggle, it was history. But it didn't last long. It didn't work. It really couldn't work. As I'd realized if I paid attention to Colossians 2, 20-23, if with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world... Why, as you're still alive in the world, do you submit to these regulations? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. Referring to things that all perish as they are used. According to human precepts and teachings. They indeed, they have the appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body. But they have no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. This quote from Tim Chester in his book, You Can Change resonates in my heart very well. I almost feel like I could have written these words. I don't know what you I don't know if that's the same for you. This morning I imagine it is. Because when we think about change in the Christian life, we want it. But we don't really know how to get there. But we're struggling with how to get there. How are our hearts supposed to be turning over? How is the old, the, the old man supposed to be passing away and how's the new man supposed to be coming alive. You see, we have the desire to change, but we don't have the power to change. And why is that? Well, it's because a lot of our temps, they look like what Paul outlines in for the Colossians. Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. We make all these rules, all these laws, all these principles, all these commitments, all these written vows, which we think that the vows and the commitments, those things in and of themselves, are going to bring change. And they don't, do they? I remember 
at one point in my life that uh, I was told that if I had a quiet time for six months, I had the right to reward myself, or for six weeks, we had a right to reward ourselves with something. And I thought that then if I had the quiet time for six weeks, the idea was that then you would keep having it and you would keep spending time in the Word because it's something you need to do. And what I found was that after six weeks, what did I do? I took a week off, right? You take a week off. You see, it doesn't bring actually true heart change. We have a desire to change. We don't have the power to actually bring real, true gospel change. And the thing is, is that the law, making laws, making rules, is never a good source for our change. As Paul says, it really only appears to be wisdom. Now, I deal with this actually with Camille and a lot of, a lot of times. My daughter, Camille, she's about three years old. And I know that y'all probably hear a lot of, you know, those pastor illustrations dealing with their children. Well, the reason that these are helpful and this, this is especially helpful is because we can see some of those things really clearly with our children, can't we? They lack the inhibitions. They lack the ability to kind of hide some of the things that we like, that we're good at covering up and making them look pretty. Anyway, I deal with, Camille and I deal with change all the time. You know, she's a young girl. She doesn't yet know her limits to her life. She doesn't know that crossing the street can be something that's very dangerous. And so we talk about that. You know, when she runs out in the street, we have to talk about, okay, we need to change the way that you're doing these things. I mean, she doesn't really understand that, you know, giving Nunir a big hug and then just dropping to the ground, it actually hurts him. You know, she's trying to be sweet, but she doesn't understand how to change. She doesn't understand what kind of change needs to be happening in her life. She also, you know, dealing with just kind of all those different things of being sometimes a selfish little girl, selfish with near near, selfish with us. You know, she needs that help learning how to change because she can't do this on her own. And it's a process. It's something that she has to go through as she grows up. But it doesn't happen on her own. It actually happens in the context of Leslie and I bringing her along as her parents, right? You see, this morning as we actually open this up, the thing that we're going to realize is that for us to understand change, we have to understand that there's a Father in Heaven who's bringing us along. That when we read these things this morning, it's actually God trying to show us good things. That it'll show us the danger of the street even when we yet cannot perceive its danger. John Stott, talking about this, he said, In the command to exchange our old humanity for the new one, Paul's not implying that we can bring about our own new birth. Nobody has ever given birth to himself. The very concept is ludicrous. No, in the new humanity, we assume it is God's creation, not ours. And this morning, what we see is that for change to happen, for change to happen for Camille, she needs us to bring it along in her. For change to happen in our hearts, we actually need the work of the Heavenly Father to transition us along. We need God to be doing the work of bringing the new man to life. And there are two things that I want us to see this morning, or to ask, two things I want us to ask this morning, and this these are actually not the same things that are necessarily in your bulletin. At least I've cut down a couple points. I've cut down a point. And the first question we need to ask is, what is it that needs to change? And how is it that the gospel affects the things that need to be changed in our lives? And then the second thing is, you know, talking about what needs to change, we got to ask ourselves, how do we change? And that's kind of the lingering question that we all have each day, isn't it? You know, we've promised that we're not going to get upset. We've promised we're not going to hold bitterness. And yet, it goes on. When we get angry again, and we don't know how to change, and we actually are given that this morning in God's Word. So our Father begins by showing us what it needs, what it is that needs to begin to change in this passage. You know, without me giving Camille direction, she'll grow up doing what? She'll just grow up doing whatever she thinks best, which is a good way to become very selfish 
and probably very self-destructive. Again, you, know, you think about the street. That's a self-destructive behavior, running out in the street without looking both ways. You know, those things that you think uh, you're, you're always annoyed by with your parents. I have to show her that she needs to change. I have to show her that there are things that need to be changed in her lives. I can't just leave it up to her. You know, you can't play with electrical sockets. You can't just push your brother down. You can't eat whatever you want. Sometimes you actually need to eat. Sometimes you actually need to drink. I have to show her these things. And if I don't do these things, I'm not really a loving father, am I? So we show her what good, what's good for her. But then part of this process of change that we deal with Camille is actually I try to show her that I don't just show her what's good for her, but I show her why it's good for her. You see, it's this goodness, this, you know, when I tell her the safeness of not having to go in the street, that she's going to have to get shots in the hospital. That's, that's about all she can understand. She realizes that I'm protecting her, that there's something good behind it. And this goodness is what motivates us. And the goodness of the gospel is the thing that actually motivates change for us. So that when we begin to talk about this first, this first verse in, chapter, in verse 25, therefore having put away falsehood, we need to understand there's a gospel goodness to what Paul is directing us to. That there's a gospel goodness in what Paul's directing us to. Notice that, though, that as he begins this first kind of injunction, that he says, having put away falsehood. I think it's really interesting that he starts the passage this way because he starts with this idea that there's something that's already has been completed. He says, having put away falsehood. You know, and it's actually he begins to tell us how he put on the new man by telling us that something has already taken place. You know, and this is the first thing we need to understand about change is that the process has already begun. The process has already begun. So when we ask the question of what, when we ask the question of what we need to be putting away, that is falsehood here, we realize that this is a process that's going on. And so we need to embrace it because we're those who are, who are the new creation, those who are for Christ. The process has begun. So let's look at that in particular. Paul says in verse 25, Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. You know, and here's the thing. He's talking, he's giving them these ideas of how they live in community together. That's actually what makes it, gives it this gospel shape. That our ethics as Christians, they're not, they're not philosophical ethics. They're actually ethics for the sake of the kingdom of God. And you see it here. Falsehood, what does it do? It undermines fellowship. We talked about this just a little bit last week in Sunday school. When we talk about being encouraging that, the reality is that we think of lies and just how they mislead people for our own sake and how they're bad in that way. But the thing is, they actually mislead people and they destroy your fellowship with other people. Lies lead other people into bad places for themselves. But the opposite is true also. And this is where the gospel, we need to see that the gospel is not just putting off, but it's also putting on. The opposite is true as well. That we need, to, that truth actually begins to strengthen fellowship. And so when he contrasts here, when he contrasts the putting away of falsehood, he also intentionally tells us that we need to begin to speak truth to each other. And he even says it explicitly, for, truth is neighbor, for we are members of one another. And he speaks to this responsibility that the gospel is something that needs to be working out, not for our own sake, but for the sake of others. And I would dare say also for the sake of the kingdom of God. Now he moves on as he goes into uh, verses 26 and 27, and he says, Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down in your anger. And give no opportunity to the devil. Well, here's the second thing that he's telling us. How do we need to be changing in Christ? Well, think, one of the things he's saying is that we need to let anger have its right course. It's interesting that he actually talks about anger in this way. 
Because we think about anger in a general way, and we say anger is very dangerous, and it is, rightly so. But the first qualification he gives to being angry, because he actually says be angry, is do not sin. And so he's telling us there is a way to be angry as Christians. There's a way to be angry as God's people. That's good, and that's healthy. And what that means for us is that we need to have anger that is tied to who Christ is, to who God is, to the things that he's doing. The other kind of anger is the dangerous anger. Calvin actually talks about it. He says, from the, uh, if we comply with this injuncture, the objects of our anger are salt, not in others but in ourselves, then we begin to pour out our indignation against our own faults. And he's talking about we need to have this reorientation of how we understand anger. Anger typically is what? Defense of myself. I mean, that's generally what anger is. There's a rare few times when I read in the news of some great injustice and I get angry. And that may be a little bit of a hint of God's righteous anger. But the anger that I usually am guided by, and I think that we're probably most usually guided by, is injustice or unfairness that's directed towards ourselves, right? When maybe uh, husbands, you know, you get home and you've expected things to be in order and you get a little bit angry because, man, you know, and we fall into that kind of uh, wrong male perspective of things should, things should be ready for me. Think the world should orient around me. You know, this is one of the things that we unjustly get angry about. But it's a good, and it's a good example of how anger revolves around us. So he says, be angry but do not sin. So he cautions us, be angry but do not sin. The next thing he says, a qualification for angry is, do not let the sun go down your anger. Now this is one of my actually favorite, uh, one of my favorite pieces of marital advice that, you hear it almost, I didn't hear it actually at this rehearsal dinner this past week, but you hear it a lot of after rehearsal dinners. Some man who's been through marriage for a while is generally a man, which is probably a good indication of where a lot of anger comes from then, stands up and he says, this is one of the things that's been really helpful for me and my wife in marriage. And he goes back to this passage where he says, do not let the sun go down your anger. You know, and that needs to kind of remind us. The fact that we hear that in some ways so frequently tied to it, whether actually in Christian circles or not, is a good indication that there's something very powerful to that advice and to that wisdom and to that kind of change. That our anger is something that's very dangerous when we sit down and stew in it. You know, whether you're married or not. That our anger is something that's very dangerous at the same time when we don't hold it in the right regard, when we hold it in respect to ourselves. Now you think about it, when bitterness settles in in our hearts, it gets a strong hold, doesn't it? When we begin to give it that room and anger kind of uh, erupts up, it's hard to hold it in. And that's why he goes on to say, and he kind of gives them this last warning. He says, and give no opportunity to the devil. But do you realize what he's saying? He's saying this is the danger of letting anger kind of have its free reign, is that we're giving opportunity to the devil. Anger, when it's unreigned, uncontrolled, when it's very self-based, is like a fertile ground for the growing of the devil, for growing selfishness in your heart, for growing division in your relationships, for growing division with your children, with your families, with your roommates, with whoever it is. And so he tells them, and you see that, again, Paul's giving this idea of change that's not just a putting off and a putting on, but he's giving us this whole perspective. Our anger, and what he was saying before when he was talking about our truthfulness, these things have effect for other people. So the change they have is not, just a, is not just a doing and a don't. It's actually learning how to care for other people, isn't it? It's learning how to bring other people to Christ. And that's why we need to put away anger because we give opportunity to the devil. And what happens when we do that is we put away Christ and we put away those other things. So he says, put those away. Give no opportunity to the devil. The next thing he says 
is verse 28, let the thief no longer steal, but let him labor doing honest work with his own hands, so he may have something to share with anyone in need. Yeah, this is actually an interesting verse. I'm thinking, you know, I, I know this may not necessarily be true, but theft is not necessarily something we have to deal with a whole lot. Now, I live up in Bluff Park, and we lock our doors just because we moved from St. Louis, but, you know, a lot of people out there will say, you don't need to lock your doors. I'm sure around Ross Bridge, there's kind of this reality that we live in this safe environment. We're not necessarily tempted by these kind of things. But as you get into this, actually, injunction that Paul's talking about, about the thief no longer steal, you actually see that he's talking about something more than just simply petty theft. That he's talking about using our lives, using our resources, using our work, using our labors, again, for the sake of the kingdom. It's this tent of gospel change. This is what I'm saying. Gospel change is different than just kind of simply empty ethics. Yeah, actually, it's kind of interesting. You could look back at Greek or Roman literature around this time, and you might find a similar list of ethics of uh, don't steal and different things. You read some of the philosophers. Those times, they had high-value ethics. But the thing that sets these apart is that these ethics actually orient, again, around this idea of beginning to live out Christ's love for us. And so he says, let the thief no longer steal. And here's the challenge for us. But let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands, so he may have something to share with anyone that is in need and this is one of the hard things for us, because when we labor, kind of carrying this self-oriented perspective that we're kind of carrying, this is the change, the self-oriented perspective, kind of carrying it through, our labors brings our own, brings our own resources, right? I've, I've earned this, it's mine, I get to keep it, I get to distribute it how I want. But what Paul's actually saying is, when, especially when he challenges the thief, He's saying that those who hold on to all their things and yet don't see them as there for the community good, as there for the good of the church, for those around you in need, not just the church, then you're, you're like a thief. You're holding on to things that aren't really yours. You know, I, was, uh, I, I listen to NPR quite frequently, and I, read, I try to read the New York Times, the Wall Street Journal, just kind of flip through those things and find out what's going on. And economic commentators recently have been kind of bringing up that there's a continuing growing disparity between the rich and the poor. You know, that the rich get richer and the poor get poorer. And you've probably heard this. It's basis for like all different kind of economic theories and trying to figure out how to narrow that gap or bring, you know, different, uh, not, not let that happen, essentially. And I don't know what you believe about that. I don't really have a great socio-political opinion on that. But one of the things that, when I hear that, I begin to grow weary because I think that's something that's become dangerously true for the church. That we as a church, in some ways, especially as a Presbyterian church, and we're a relatively wealthy church. I don't know if y'all know that. Not, I'm not saying Cross Creek in particular. But as the Presbyterian Church, we're a relatively wealthy church. And the scary thing is there are a lot of diverse needs in this community. And what Paul's saying is that the reorientation of our values when we put on the new man is that these things are no longer just ours. I was just over in Bessemer, David Lanier and I went over to Bessemer this past week to go just uh, hear a, uh, a lesson that was at the foundry. And you see all these people that need, that have incredible needs. And not just physical needs. They have emotional, spiritual, mental needs. And what that means is that there's something, that, and, and what it means when we read this, is that I would go so far as to say, we actually owe something to them. Owe something to the care of them. In some instances, it may be financial. In some instances, though, it just may be that time of, of being willing to be with people. To help them struggle in those things. 
So Paul sets up for us that our change, our, our seeing our resources as God's, changes the way that we live when we realize that we are a new creation. Next thing he says, you look verse 29 through 30, he begins to talk about the dangers of corrupting talk. He says, let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. And do not grieve the Spirit of God by whom you are sealed for the day of redemption. And this is something we actually, again, we talked about last week in the Sunday school, that not only are we stewards of our resources, but we're also stewards of our words. And that's what he's talking about here, that our words aren't ours simply for our own use. That our words have effect on others, even when we're using them in private. Because what they're doing is they're changing our hearts and they're changing other people's hearts in the way that we relate to people. And so what Paul's calling us to is this whole transition of seeing that all these things are used for the sake of the kingdom. And so the what of change is simply that. It's saying what we need to be changing is that we need to begin living and understanding what it means to live for God and for his kingdom. If we really understood this, this would challenge especially the way that we think about, the way that we speak. You know, we're ready to have a harsh word when, when necessary, right? Again, we go back to defending ourselves. We're ready to defend ourselves. But when we offended Christ, listen to the words that he offers us. Come to me, all you who labor heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me. For I am gentle and lowly in heart. And you will find rest into your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. I think this is a beautiful thing that as we understand this, again, this transition, is that we begin to bear the words of grace and the words of gentleness and the words of building up other people. What we actually bring, and look, Paul actually says it here specifically, that it may give grace to those who hear. We actually bring and carry with us the grace of God in the things that we say and that we do. And it's actually when we stand against those things, when we stand against, remember I said that there's this reality that's already taking place, that's what he talks about then when he says that don't grieve the Holy Spirit. And this isn't a specific thing that he's saying, right? He's just talking to us and he's saying, there's a seriousness that the Spirit himself grieves when we believers live against the things that God has done for us, when we live against the grace of God. And so he tells us this and he says, the Spirit, by telling us that it's the Spirit who sealed us for redemption, he's saying, listen, it's still true. But, you're, but what you're doing is you're living against the redemption of Christ when we live in anger, when we live in malice, when we live in deceit, and we live uh, as thieves holding on to our things. He's saying that we live against Christ's redemption. And what he's longing for us to do is to live out the redemption of Christ. You know, we're being told all these things as we look at this passage, and it's hard for me, I don't know about for y'all, but as I go through these things, it's hard for me to kind of hit on them and, and get each one, and it's a lot of, there can be a lot of things said. But unless, but when we get a gospel, this gospel-tinted understanding of these things, we kind of see that change is something that's a little different than actually anticipated before. And I, I think it probably means there's a little more hope as we begin to think about change. But the question still lingers, how do we change? How is change supposed to be happening? Well, again, go back to Camille. We're carrying this whole thing through. I'm committed to it, sold on it. When Camille and I are working on her change project, also known as discipline, the first thing that we deal with, and this is usually, again, in the process of discipline, the first thing we deal with is what's wrong? What is wrong and what needs to be changed? What does she need to be doing? But the second thing we always talk about 
is how is she going to change? And this is my favorite part of it. Because we may go through, we may do, you know, we may do the spanking. Again, I don't know if you believe in that. We may do the corner or whatever it is. But the way that she begins to understand how she changes begins with this. She comes out of the corner, gets up from her spanking, and I give her a kiss and I give her a hug. And I tell her that changes are going to begin to happen because I'm with you, Camille. Because I love you. Because I'm going to take care of you. And this morning, as we ask the question of how do we change? How do we grow in faith? How do we put away anger? How do we live as those who believe that our resources are really God's? And so we live out of that joy of being able to give those things out. How do we change in that way? Was to begin to understand that there's a God who is near us, who is kissing us, who is holding on to us, who is telling us about his love. So we need to understand our Father's love for us in this. I was about to end this passage when I was doing my original study at verse 32, but then I realized as I was going through different commentaries and doing studies that you cannot end the passage here. It's not enough. Verses 1 and 2 of chapter 5 actually give us the full understanding of how to understand gospel change. And, he begin, and Paul begins to tell us that the way that change actually happens, you'll see there's a transition in, his, in the way that he talks about uh, the ethics of, of men in verse 31. As he says, Let all bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor, slander, and malice be put away from you, along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted. And this is where it looks different than the previous things. Forgiving one another as God and Christ forgave you. See, the thing that we're called to do as we, bring, as we have gospel change, the thing that we have, I should say, as we, have, as we go about gospel change in our lives, is that we have the forgiveness of Christ working in us. As we see all these things, there is a sense of failure in the back of my mind at all times because I know even if I struggle, even if I struggle well, I'm going to fail. And Paul brings us back to this point that you've been forgiven in Christ. And he says, and he says, forgive because you've been forgiven. And he brings us back to the orientation of how are we going to love? Only by loving as Christ has loved. Only by forgiving as Christ has loved. Only by being rightly angered as Christ has been rightly angered. Only living as our resource for others as Christ has done these things for us. I don't mean just as an example. I mean for us. And that's why he actually calls us. Then in verses 1 of chapter 5, he says, Be imitators of God because we are beloved children. You see, he gives us the reality that you are children of God. Again, this is something that's already true for us. We actually have a jump start on this whole change project because it's already happening. And it's being affected by what's already been done in God. And so when he says, be imitators of God, he's not trying to set the level impossibly high for us. What he's actually saying is that uh, he's not trying to put it out of reach. He's actually beginning to show us that we ha- the extent of our reach is the extent of God's redemption. As we live out change, the extent of our reach now is that we become imitators of God, that we carry with us Christ and the cross, that we carry with us the bread and the wine to give to people, that they could feast on Christ's forgiveness, they could feast on Christ's brokenness, that we could give to them God's love as a father, that is steadfast, never changing. You want to know how to change. You've got to understand who your God is. You've got to understand His love. You can put it this way, and this is kind of going against the old adage, but 
the best defense. That's how we usually think about change. Okay, what are all the, what are all the barriers I'm going to set up so that I can't get over them? That's how I'm going to change. And what Paul's told us in Colossians is that, nope, those give the appearance of wisdom, but we're pretty athletic as far as sin goes. You know, we just kind of run up the wall and, you know, there we are. We're pretty, we're pretty good sinners is the problem. But what the gospel tells us is that the best, the, the best defense is a good offense. And our offense is Christ. And he sums it up in verse 2. He says, love, I have it covered up. He says, walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. I like this. Paul almost gets lost in the reality of Christ's love. He says, walk in love, and then he just goes into this vexology of God's, of God's grace towards us. He says, as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to Christ. You go back to these things, nothing in the, the, the passage looks like that. He draws us to the beauty of God's love for us. Paul's showing us in all these things that love is difficult, though. Love does require change. Love does bring us to change. What we have is Christ's love working change in us so we can begin to love as Christ loves. You know, the thing that we realize is that love labors, love works. There's something active about love. Do we simply count it as an emotion? It falls dead in the water, doesn't it? If we simply go on our whims of love, love fades. Someday, I used to, I used to not like, uh, or I used to love Milo's, but now they give me hiccups. So I can't love Milo's burgers anymore. That's, that's, that's my version of love. I loved Alabama football yesterday. I don't quite love it today. That's our version of love. But when God directs us to his love, he says that love labors, love endures, and he shows us that the, this pattern of struggle is going on for us. That God continues to love us. That his offering of the cross is still continually good for us. And so it's by love that we put things away. It's by love that we put things on. When I talk about marriage of folks, I always bring up this. That love, love is about self-denial, isn't it? Unless you're loving yourself, then it's all about self-gratification. But to love somebody in any meaningful way is going to bring self-denial. And I always tell uh, people, either whether they're married or preparing to be married, I always tell them, this is going to be the cost. For you to love your wife, for you to love your husband, is going to mean that you've got to die to yourself. And guess what? It's going to be hard. But if love is any other way, if you think about Christ's love, if it was any other way, if it didn't mean that he had to die, then love, was, then love is conditional. And conditional love is pretty much meaningless. Think about it. What, make, what makes love meaningful for us is that it endures the difficulties, doesn't it? That it endures trials. And this is the change that's happening in our hearts. We're beginning to learn how to love as those who can endure the difficulties, those who can endure the trials. Because what we begin, what we understand, and what we continue to look back to is that we have a love that lasts eternally for us in Christ. Y'all get that this morning? When you think about changing your life, are you right now making your list? Okay, here's the five things I'm going to do. Are you ready to say, 
Christ, I need you. To look at the cross and say, look at the sacrifice paid for my sin. Look at the depth of the intimacy of God's love for me. The best defense is a good offense. If you want to understand how to really struggle with sin, if you want to understand how to struggle with change, run to Christ this morning. Run to Christ tomorrow. I can't promise you eternal successes. We're not going to run to Christ like we should. But I do promise you that as you run to Christ, you'll find change taking place in a whole new way than you ever imagined. You know, up until this up until this point in Ephesians, Paul has been bringing us to this beautiful picture of the gospel, and we can't just throw that away. We can't just say, "Okay, I got that. Now I'm going on to what I need to do as a Christian." We actually have to. What he's actually showing us is that. Okay, change happens as we look back to Christ's love. As we remember that we're justified by faith in Christ. By the things that God has done for us. Y'all, I hope this is an encouragement to you this morning. I hope you can see that this is a burden for you and for myself. That we have learned to understand and rest in God's love. The thing is, as a father, Camille and I go through this routine almost on a daily basis. And it is tiring. I don't really do a great job at it. I get angry. All these things that actually Paul talks about, they're so hard for me. But the beautiful thing is, again, that the Father's love for us doesn't fade. It It doesn't start to wash away. 2,000 years ago, roughly, roughly therein, God's love was established firmly in the cross, something that doesn't change. And it was affirmed again when Christ rose from the dead. And it's going to be affirmed again when we remember as we come to the table that we look forward to a day of redemption and that Christ right now is mediating for us in glory. Dwell on these things if you want to understand change in your life. Paul says, Christ loved for us, loved us, and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and a sacrifice to God. See, it's all up to Jesus. It's all up to Jesus. It's funny, Derek and I usually coordinate whenever I've been preaching the last song. And this is the funniest thing. This morning, I'm not joking, I had not, like I usually do, gotten to look through the bulletin and look at our order of songs and I told Derek, you know, earlier in the week, I was like, yeah, that, uh, that's fine. I, I don't really have an opinion right now. I was trying to firm things up. This morning, I went through and kind of reoriented everything. And I came to this point that it has to be about the Father's love. That when Paul says in 5 verse 1, that be imitators of God, that the key is understanding that we are beloved children. And Derek actually put together this final song that we're about to sing. And I want you all to sing this Understanding that this is the key to your change, how deep the Father's love for us, how vast beyond all measure, that He would give His only Son to make a wretched treasure, how great the pain of searing loss, the Father turns His face away, as wounds which mar the chosen one bring many sons to glory. Let's pray.
Lord, how glad we are and what a relief it is that we have a God like you. That we have Christ. That we have the Holy Spirit actively pointing us to yourself every day, Lord. Lord, whether we feel it or not, we are saints that have been equipped in every way to put on the new man. Lord, do that for us every day, Lord. Help us to look back to you each day and to hold and wrestle with the love of our Father, Lord, so we may, point, we may be pointed in joy to the day of glory where we are with you eternally. It's in Christ's name we ask these things. Amen.